0: Our scripture text this morning is from Mark chapter 8 through 9-1. We're going to begin in Mark 8, verse 27. So you can turn there in your Bibles. It's also printed for you. Please stand as we read God's Word together. Mark 8, beginning in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples... And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death. Until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let us pray together. Our Father, we pray this morning that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus both in his humiliation and in his exaltation. We pray that we would see him as the servant, as the humble one, and yet we pray that you would give us great confidence in his power, power that we can follow. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, there is a land called Gondor, this expansive territory, but It hasn't had a king for many, many years. And it's been ruled by stewards who have taken care of the land. And the people have long expected that soon their king, the real king, would come to them. But most of them doubt that that day will ever come. And most of the stewards assume that they will have power forever. Now, we meet a character named Aragorn. And when we first meet him... He doesn't seem very kingly. He's actually the heir of the king, the long ancient king Elendil. But we see him as a rough warrior. And throughout the first part of the story, his main task is to protect these little hobbits from the evil lord Sauron. And so he is kind of lurking about and and protecting this realm called the Shire. But something happens. Uh, the land of Gondor comes under attack. And Sauron's forces are moving in. And the darkness that's coming from Mordor is creeping in. And so at one point in the story, we see Aragorn leading a group of warriors back to his homeland, back to his home city to defend it. And they travel in boats up a river, and then they're on horseback, and they're galloping across the fields, and the wind is blowing through their hair, and they're on mighty war horses, and all of a sudden, Aragorn unfurls this standard, and on this standard is the white tree of Gondor, and the jeweled crown, and the seven stars of the house of Elendil, his ancestor, And all of a sudden, before our eyes and before everybody else, it's obvious that this is the true king. He's returned. He has returned to deliver his city. Well, soon after this, uh, one of the steward's sons, Faramir, is sick. And he's about to die. And Aragorn goes and he uses special powers uh, to heal Faramir. And everybody recognizes this as a sign. A sign that he's the king Because they know the prophecy, the prophecy that said the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. And so they exalt him as their king that very night, and Aragorn goes off and he leads a mighty force to storm the gates of Mordor, to go right to the heart of the enemy. And we see this victorious and valiant king coming to deliver his people, to rescue them, To lead them into battle. To take down the opposition. Well this passage in Mark reveals to us a king in somewhat similar fashion. The hero of our dreams is unveiled. We travel along with a little band of, of disciples as they walk through the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And as they walk through these villages Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? That's a legitimate question to ask because he's been going about teaching great things and doing many remarkable healings and showing his power. So he says, Who do, I, who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, Well, some people say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others one of the prophets and these are all noble people. But, but it's really an inadequate answer to Jesus' question because Jesus isn't just... A teacher. And he isn't just another prophet. He wants something more. And so he elicits a response from his disciples. He looks at them and he says. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says. You are the Christ. Now this was an astounding thing for him to say. Because the Christ was the Messiah. The one that the people had been waiting for. For years and for centuries, the one who would come and deliver them, the true hero. And Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus immediately silences them and he says, don't tell anybody. Don't even use that word. In fact, I'm not even going to use that word. Jesus stops using the word Christ because he knows that that word has expectations that come along with that. And he's got to shape those expectations. How do we feel when a hero shows up? We love heroes. We love to read stories. We love when the hero arrives on the scene finally because it does something exciting inside of us. It makes us realize that in fact, in spite of all the opposition, in spite of how bad things seem, there must be some hope. There must be some hope if this hero arrives. He's going to he's going to reverse everything that's wrong. He is going to put down the opposition. There's a sense of excitement and hope and expectation that wells up in us. And this is exactly what the disciples were feeling at the time. Excitement and hope. And they start wondering what's the king's battle plan going to be? Are we going to charge the gates? What's, what's the strategy? And you know, great military leaders always know just the right words to say to their troops to get them all excited. You know, General Maximus, when he's rallying the Roman forces before they go to battle, rides up and down the lines on his war horse and he looks each of his men in the eyes and he says, strength and honor. Strength and honor. That's how we're going into battle. So what's Jesus' battle cry going to be? How would he marshal his forces? Look at verse 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, the Son of Man, yes, the Son of Man. They all had an idea of what that meant. They knew, they knew what Daniel had prophesied Daniel prophesied in Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And Peter is probably about to finish, finish Jesus' sentence. Yes, the Son of Man is going to come and finally get rid of these, these miserable Romans. And he's going to give us back our city. And we're going to be seen as as God's true people. And oppression is going to go away. And things are going to be great. And probably (laughs) we're going to be sitting in the king's court. But in this story, the hero shatters our expectations. Because immediately after Jesus is acknowledged as the Messiah, he starts talking about suffering and death. Maximus says, strength and honor. And Jesus says, shame, and humiliation. Let's look at verse 31 again. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Why was this so shocking? First, it was shocking because Jesus is talking about a rejected Messiah. That's almost paradoxical. That would have blown any categories that these people had. The Messiah wasn't someone who would be weak and would be rejected. He was a victorious figure, not a loser. And those who would reject Jesus are these three different groups of Jewish religious leaders who who had who had their disagreements, but they all joined forces in opposition to Jesus. So the very ones who were supposed to be most likely to recognize Jesus were the ones that didn't recognize him. And Jesus says he's going to be a dying king. How could that be a good plan? How could that be God's plan for his king to die? But Jesus says it's a necessity. Look, he says the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, and be raised. And like the disciples, we might wonder why must? Why the must? Why does it have to be this way? And we know from other parts of the gospel that it was to fulfill scripture, that obviously this was God's plan. But why? Why must it happen this way? Jesus isn't going under compulsion, but he's going, he's going willingly. And that shows us how much he loves us. It was his purpose. The reason that he must go is so that both God's justice and his mercy can be upheld. Because God doesn't just sweep sin under the rug and say, don't worry about it, it's okay, you're okay, you're okay. He's got to deal with it somehow. And the cross was how he dealt with it. It was an absolute necessity. Through it, Jesus paid for sins and we can't be saved any other way. That means we can't save ourselves. That means it's got to be all of grace. It's got to be something that happens entirely outside of us. And that can be rather insulting to us because it it means that that I'm not good enough, and I, like, and I like to think that I'm pretty good. It means that I'm so bad that the very son of God had to die for me. So that's the negative side, but look at the positive side. The positive side is that if the, if the God of the universe would send his only son to die for you, how great must his love be for you? I mean, really, if King Jesus would be willing to give up the glory and suffer and die for you, how much must he love you? The third shocking thing that almost goes by unnoticed is that every time, and this is the first of three times that Jesus predicts his death, he also predicts his resurrection. But when we look at the way that the story plays out, it becomes clear that the disciples really aren't expecting Jesus to rise. But Jesus says it clearly three times. And so I think the point for us is that as we as we hear these words about Jesus dying, and as we we hear the rest of what he's going to say, we can't forget, like the disciples, the resurrection. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to stay dead. So Jesus' death isn't isn't something to be feared. It's It's not a victory for the enemy, but in fact, Jesus is going to say that it is the very way to victory. It's the way to glory. King Jesus takes the path through death to glory. And Peter was utterly, utterly appalled at this. The next thing we see is that the hero confronts our life mission. Peter can't stand the thought of Jesus dying, so he takes him aside and he rebukes him. And Jesus looks around and he sees his other disciples and he sees that they're all kind of nodding their heads in agreement. Yeah, Jesus, this is not a good plan. This is this isn't what you're supposed to. Those aren't your lines, Jesus. You got the wrong lines there. You're not supposed to know we're supposed to make people die. You're not supposed to die. And Jesus looks at them and he rebukes Peter right in front of them because they all needed to hear it. And he identifies Peter as the mouthpiece of Satan. Ouch! But that's exactly what Peter was playing. He was playing Satan's mouthpiece because Satan had tried to do the very same thing to Jesus in the wilderness. In Matthew 4, Satan tempts Jesus to take the bloodless path to glory. He says, you know what, Jesus? I can give you everything. I can give you the glory, the power, the dominion. Just give up your mission and bow at my feet. And Jesus can't do that. But Peter is doing the exact same thing because he thinks he knows better than God. He thinks he knows better than God. In 480 BC, the story is told of of 300 Spartan warriors led by King Leonidas in the Battle of Thermopylae where they held off 100,000 Persian forces. And how were they able to do this? Because they forced the Persian forces to come through this narrow mountain pass the hot gates, the gates of fire. And there, their numerical advantage was, was mitigated. And so these 300 brave warriors fight off these hordes and they almost would have made it. Except for one measly little Spartan named uh, <coughs> Ephialtes who snuck off because he had his feelings hurt and he snuck off and he, and he went to King Xerxes of the Persians and he told him about a secret way to get around the Spartan guard. And so at the end of the story, the Spartans are surrounded. They're completely surrounded by the Persian forces. And the general of the Persian forces is saying to King Leonidas of the Spartans, you fought valiantly. Just give up, just surrender, and you will have greatness. And Ephialtes, this, this traitor, says to his king, Yield, Leonidas. Use your reason. Think. Think of your men. I beg you. Turn back. There's no reason for you to die. Why would you do this? Just just give in. And the general says to Leonidas, You fight for your lands, keep them. You fight for Sparta, she'll be wealthier and more powerful than ever before. You fight for your kingship. I will make you the warlord of all Greece. There will be no one greater than you except the Lord of hosts. And Ophiates is saying, Yes, do it. Why die? take the easy path to glory, but he can't. He can't because that would not be the path to glory. It would be the path to ruin. And so Jesus exposes the heart of man. He says to Peter, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What we see here are are two competing ideologies that are coming up against each other that are completely incompatible. They're completely irreconcilable. The things of God and the things of man. Peter can't imagine that suffering could have any part of the pathway to glory. Of the pathway to Success of the pathway to victory. Why? Why was Peter so upset? What were his heart commitments? What were the things that he was holding on to that he felt were threatened? He wanted success and he wanted acclaim and he wanted glory and he wanted security and all of those things were falling to the ground as he heard Jesus say, I'm going to die. What heart commitments of ours are threatened by this notion of suffering? I think that deep down, most of us really want to be comfortable. We want to be happy. We want to, we want to follow Jesus if we're Christians, but, but we, we still want to be Comfortable. There are things that we are radically committed to our goals, our desires, our dreams, our financial and, and physical security and safety, and we say to Jesus, I want to follow you, I really, really do, but but please don't stand in the way of my career goals. Because I'm gonna do whatever it takes to climb this corporate ladder. And I don't want you to threaten that. Jesus, I want to follow you, but you need to know that the most important things to me are my children's security and education, making sure that my family has everything that we might want or need, and I really would like a granite countertop. So Jesus, if you can do that, then I am going to follow you. But Jesus says, you know what? Pursuing your own dreams and desires doesn't mesh with my agenda. And you've got to either pick one or the other. And so the hero reorients us. He reverses our strategy for victory. Look at verse 34. He called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus includes the crowds because this isn't just for the spiritual elite. This is a message for anybody that would follow him. And, and he spells out what, what the Christian agenda is. And he says that the mission entails denying yourself... And picking up your cross. Now these are these are strong words and these are difficult and and we're gonna march into this section, but, but before we do that, let me just say that the normal way that we hear passages like this are are gloomy. And we say, Oh, yes. The cost of discipleship, the necessary evil of being a Christian. And and we look at this and we think, ah, oh, this is just this is just the bad part that we don't want to deal with, and uh, and it's just kind of the rain cloud over your head. But that's not that's not what this passage is. We can't we can't be blinded by by some of these things and the call to commitment and fail to see the blazing rays of sunshine that come through. Okay, so we need to we need to we need to look through what Jesus calls us to, but we also need to recognize that there is blazing sunshine in this passage. So he says, first, you've got to give up your ambitions. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to, you've got to abandon your own identity and your own, your own focused efforts to secure things for yourself, to secure your own security, to secure your dreams and your ambitions. You've got to deny those things. It doesn't mean that you've got to uh, specifically deny things that might be included. But it's not really talking about giving up chocolate for Lent. That's not what Jesus means when he says deny things. It may mean giving up things, but it's much, it's much more comprehensive than that. And he's not saying, he's not saying when, when he says to deny yourself, he's not saying you've got to hate yourself. You've got to punish yourself. You've got to to whip yourself. You've got to give up everything and make yourself miserable. That's not at all what he's saying. And in fact, if, if if we take that tack, we're still focusing on ourselves. We're focusing on what I'm giving up and my suffering and we're focusing on my pain. And denying ourselves really means forgetting about ourselves looking away from ourselves, not focusing on me, but focusing on, on Jesus and his agenda. And he says part of that agenda is to pick up our cross. Now, this is the first time in Mark that, that the word cross has come up. And this would not have been the first thing that these disciples would have thought when Jesus talks about dying. Jews didn't, didn't kill people on crosses. The Romans did that. And this was an appalling way to die. And so this would have been a whole other layer of, of appallingness, uh, if that's even a word, to Peter and, and the disciples. You know, it conjures up an image of a death march. People being led off to die in shame and humiliation. And that is so an appealing. But here's the paradox of the Christian life. Jesus says that the way to life is really through death. Look at verses 35 through 37. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? And so this is a little bit complicated and it sounds confusing and he's talking about life and in some senses it seems positive and in some it seems negative. But look at verse 35. The first time he says, he talks about saving his life. He's talking about earthly life. He's talking about possibly trying to save yourself through your good works and your achievement or saving your life by focusing so much on on finding yourself, on on self-fulfillment on achieving your dreams and goals and desires. Seeking your happiness above all else. And he says that when we do that, when we try to save our life in that sense, we actually lose real, true, eternal life. That kind of saving your life is, is equivalent to gaining the whole world. And that sounds so great. And that's what Xerxes was offering to King Leonidas To have everything that the world sees as important success and achievement and comfort and security, safety. We want to know that things are going to be all right. But Jesus says that to save your life in that sense results in losing everything, in losing your very soul. Verse 37, he says, What can a man give in exchange for his life or for his soul? Everything in the world, all the earthly goods and success and comfort and achievements are a horrible, horrible price to pay for losing real life, for losing your soul. The paradox is that if you try to save your life, you lose it. Instead of fulfillment, you end up getting emptiness. Instead of satisfaction, you get misery, Instead of finding yourself and being fulfilled, you end up utterly confused and don't know who you are or what your place is. So you won't be ultimately happy until you stop seeking happiness as an end in itself. And you won't be ultimately accepted by God if you're constantly trying to earn his acceptance. And you won't really find fulfillment unless you take your eyes off of yourself and your own agenda and, and put them somewhere else. On Jesus. Keep looking at verse 35. The second clause, the second part of the sentence where he says loses his life. Well, that's actually a positive thing. He's talking about setting aside your own agenda. Giving up your rights. Giving up your, your ambitious dreams and he says that that results in saving your life in salvation but look when he says that you get eternal life through doing this he's not saying that, that eternal life is gained simply through dying but he says specifically that it's losing one's life for Jesus' sake and for the gospel. And so this, this really kind of turns around our thinking about what it means to, to suffer and to give things up. Because we, we lose things all the time. And we suffer things all the time that really have nothing to do with following Jesus in the gospel. But what Jesus is talking about specifically is, is loss that results from a radical commitment to Jesus' agenda. And that agenda was taking the road through death to glory. And so Jesus looks at all of his disciples and he looks at us and he invites us to join him in this death march. And the problem is that that is so unappealing most of the time. It's appalling. But yet the end is, is blissful Anyway, and yet, and yet, somehow we just don't believe it. There was a man named Harry Randall Truman who had he had paradise. He lived in Washington, uh, right at the base of Mount St. Helens. He owned the uh, Spirit, the Lodge at Spirit Lake, essentially the, the St. Helens Lodge at Spirit Lake. And he had his own little paradise that he had created there. But in 1980, some of you remember, that Mount St. Helens began to experience a series of earthquakes over two months. And, and steam began to be emitted out of the mountain. And everybody knew what was going to happen. And so the warning went out, it was time for all the residents to leave. And, and Harry Truman was in the, in the heart of the danger zone. It was time for him to get out of there. But how could he walk away from this lakeside paradise? He didn't believe that that things were so bad. But on May 18th, 1980, when the volcano blew, he lost his life. And his precious lodge is buried under 150 feet of volcanic debris. What he couldn't see, what he couldn't believe, was that letting go of the things of this world was really the way to save his life. I've already said we look at passages of like this and we think, well, this is so negative. And Jesus is just beating me up, and the preacher's just beating me up. And we're talking about the cost of discipleship and how miserable this is, and so we should all just kind of go out and be gloomy and 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 deal with the cost of discipleship and have a miserable day. But, I think if we think that way, then, like Peter, we're failing to see something. We're failing to understand Jesus' total mission. You know, if we, if we re- react so negatively to the way of the cross, there must be something that, that, we're, that we're missing. We're having a hard time believing that losing really leads to gain. But that's what Jesus is saying. In fact, that's what he's promising. He's promising us that if we let go, if we stop clinging to our own priorities and agendas, that he really, really will bring us into paradise. That it really, really will be better than anything that we can imagine. That if we stop trying to grasp for our own security, we really will find ultimate security. That if we stop trying to be accepted, running to people and running to things to do anything that we can to feel okay, if we give that up, we can be more accepted than we ever imagined. That we can be accepted by by the king whose acceptance is the only acceptance that really matters. And Jesus says, "If, if you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, then all of these things will be added to you as well. But if we seek for happiness, we won't get it. But if we seek Jesus' agenda, we get everything else. And the hero, the hero of this story, assures us, assures us of the victory. Look at verse 838. This sounds very negative. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And that is an unspeakably awful thought. That the Son of God would be ashamed of us. But look look at what he's also saying here. Don't miss the ray of splendor. Jesus is saying... Yes, I will be ashamed. And so, and so we must follow him, but he's promising us that the king is coming. He says, when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. He's announcing the return of the king and we so easily miss that because we're focused on, we're focused on the doom and the gloom. And yet he's saying the king is coming. The king is coming in glory. And look at verse, verse 9-1. Jesus says some of them that are standing there won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come in power. What did he mean by that? Well, We don't know for sure. Uh, it's very likely that he was talking about the fact that some of them would see the, re- the transfiguration, which is coming up. And we're going to look at that next time. It's also possible that, that he was referring to Jesus' death and resurrection. Maybe his ascension. Maybe the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. Possibly all of those things. But the point, the point is this. The point is that the king is coming back. The kingdom is coming. If we are ashamed of Christ, yes, he will be ashamed of us. But if we follow him, we have the sure promise that he will say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. And just to give you a little dose of church history, the Bishop of Smyrna was a man named Polycarp who lived in the second century. And he was being forced to deny Christ. The very threat that the disciples would soon be facing, the very threat that Mark's original Roman readers would be facing, Polycarp was being forced to deny Christ. And when the proconsul pressed him, he said, Take the oath and I let you go. Just revile Christ. Just walk away. And Polycarp said, "For 80 and86 years have I been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. And how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And that's what this king wants to assure us of, that he comes riding to save us, that he will come victorious, that he already is victorious. That this king comes bringing his kingdom, and he does come riding on a horse. And if we look close enough, we'll see the standard unfurled, and on it will be a cross and a crown to remind us that the cross always comes before glory. But glory does come. But this kingdom now doesn't come in power and in grasping and in clinging, it comes in deeds of love and service. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would make real to our hearts that if we follow Christ, we are heirs of an unspeakably, unimaginably glorious kingdom. Would you make us willing to suffer with Jesus, to sacrifice our agendas to follow His in the hopes that one day we will eat at the table of the King in heaven. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.